0: Hello and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson and I'm the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined as always by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, it's it's been a week. I, I thought they said this trade deadline would be quiet. It's been anything but. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> How doing. are you doing? How are you holding up? I'm doing great. Uh love
1: the service through trade. We'll talk about that. Um, you know, we said last time that... Um, even though it looked like it might be a quiet deadline, but don't be surprised if there are surprises. And that seems to be what's happening.
0: Right. I think I kind of mentioned something on that, that some of the more fun trades are the ones that you don't see coming. Right. You know, when you, when you have a deadline like this and it's okay, where's Heimer Candelario going to go? Where's Lance Lynn going to go? Where's Lucas Giolito going to go? Like those trades are still fun when they happen and, there's some excitement to it. And especially if you're the team acquiring one of those guys or a fan of the team, acquiring one of those guys, but where I think the deadlines peak and and have their most excitement, their most entertainment value is when some of those options are exhausted and teams have to get creative and they're moving guys that might not have. And, and, you know, with the way the current landscape is, everybody talks about everybody at some point right it's it's really hard for a trade to happen with at least one of the guys getting not getting rumored as like hey the team might consider moving that guy so like there's there's few like pure shocks of like whoa that team just traded that guy we thought was totally off limits and nobody had been talking about him like we we don't expect to see much of that necessarily but when these guys that you aren't thinking as hard about are thinking like yeah, they've, they've listened on trades for him, but he's not going anywhere. Like if those guys start to get dealt, that's how you get like a real exciting, entertaining deadline. And I think a market like this with fewer just crystal clear trade candidates, but there's still plenty of teams who want to win, who need to make upgrades. I think that breeds creativity and could lead to some really fun, uh, exciting, unexpected deals in the next couple of days.
1: Yeah, that and the fact that you know, numerous executives is, have commented that there's just not that much available be- from the sellers' standpoint. Like they're kind of, you know, picked over. Like, what do the A's have to sell, or the Royals have to sell? There's not that much, right? So, so the the usual sort of pattern of of sellers selling a good veteran for prospects to a buyer. I mean, it's happening to some degree, but teams are also looking at, you know, contenders trading with contenders for major league pieces like that Marlins Swims trade of relievers, you know. So, and maybe they'll, we'll see a little bit more of that and perhaps even more on a bigger scale. So, everybody's starting to get a little creative because they're fishing around for how do we plug this hole in our lineup or in our rotation? Oh, you've got one pitcher, but you need an outfielder. There's a lot of that going on, I think.
0: Right. And, a lot of that is, is an undirect consequence, I think, un, or a direct consequence, but an unintended consequence of the expanded playoffs and the third wild card spot. Where yep. typically in a season like this, you know, the, the Mariners are 53 and 51. The, the Guardians are 52 and 53. Even the Angels, who, who they've already made a big move that we'll talk about a little bit later, they're 54 and 51. Or the Cubs, the Padres, the, we're starting to see the Mets sell now. But these teams are like kind of on the periphery of the third wildcard spot of of that wildcard race and thinking that they still might have a chance if they have like a hot week like we just got a report that the Cubs took Bellinger off the trade market because they've won eight games in a row. And like that's all it takes to be in the race when you're talking about the expanded playoffs and the third third wild card, and all you need to be is in that race. All you need to do is make the playoffs and look at the Phillies last year. Anything can happen. So
1: right. with, yeah. with,
0: with this expanded playoffs, there's fewer teams that are just gonna say definitively we're out of it. We're selling our veterans. And the ones, like like you said, the ones who are in that spot have already sold all their veterans with with a couple exceptions when you look at the White Sox and St. Louis, who didn't expect to be in this spot. But Colorado doesn't have a lot that's interesting. The Nationals have a couple guys. And that's kind of it. Then you're looking at whatever's left on the A's and Royals. And it's it's really slim pickings. And you're right, that, that forces teams to contenders to make trades with other contenders and get creative.
1: Yeah, I also wonder a little bit about flip flopping. Like the Mets basically bought Trevor Gott like three weeks ago, right? <laughs> so And now they're selling because they were thinking at the time, well, let's try. And so they may flip Trevor Gott again, you know? <laughs> Remember a few years ago when the Twins did this, like they bought and the, you know, a week for the deadline, then they changed their minds and sold. So I don't know if somebody's going to do that pivot or not.
0: I wonder if there's, and I mean, this this goes back to something I mentioned, I believe, on the previous episode, where I still don't get why teams don't do that more often, why teams aren't more aggressive earlier in trade season. We saw the Rangers do it with Aroldis Chapman, and I, I thought it was a very smart move for them to kind of jump the market there. But especially, and it, it remains to be seen whether this is going to be a trend or not, or if this is kind of a one-off, you know, there aren't really any super teams this year outside of Atlanta, And the last few years, there's we've gotten to this point, gotten to the deadline. And there's a couple like very obvious, like these teams are on pace for 100 plus wins. They're dominating their division. They're like the clear buyers and everyone else is kind of trying to chase them. And that was the dynamic you were looking at. And it it just kind of set up the market in a more normal way. But this year with the parity, with all these teams kind of bunched together, I wonder if there is an even stronger argument to that aggression and let's go pick up a guy in mid-June and best case scenario he helps us out and we're in an even better spot to add more players at the deadline worst case scenario it doesn't work out well hey we can trade him away and, and get just about the same return <laughs> we'll, we'll lose a little bit potentially but maybe he he's a reliever and he pitches really well for us in that month and his value actually goes up or maybe supply and demand takes effect and we actually get a prospect we like better than the one we gave up So i I think there's even more of an argument for that granted i'm not sure we'll see it and i'm not sure if this is just kind of a one-off situation and and next year the standings kind of return to what they normally look like but it's at least on my mind the next point to kind of bring up there is that we did see what looked like a couple overpays early on in, in this kind of run of more significant trades um those being the Lucas Giolito trade and the Lance Lynn trade, and we'll, we'll get more into the specifics of those later. But do you think there's something to that, to especially these these two teams specifically, the Angels and the Dodgers? They're somewhat desperate. It makes sense for them to be aggressive for very different reasons. The Angels being they got to push their chips in and capitalize. Once they decided they're not trading Otani, they they got to go full send. They got to make the playoffs this year. And the Dodgers, they've just been so battered by injuries. They've been so worn down this year, not quite what they usually are. And they have the D-backs nipping on their heels. They have the Giants who are actually outperforming the D-backs to this point. And they have the Padres who are like one hot week away from being just as big of a concern as anybody in that division. So they're definitely not cruising to a division title like we might have seen in recent years. So they have some sense of urgency as well. So do you think... You know, what's your take on those two overpays? And I guess if you really wanted to, you could loop in the David Robertson deal um, yeah. to to the Marlins, which was also an overpay, but a little bit closer. This one was actually accepted by the model. Um, what, what's your take on those? Do you think that's indicative of the market as a whole and some of this, the supply and demand issues of there aren't many sellers, there aren't many clear trade chips? Or do you think that's the case of a couple teams jumping the market and paying the price in order to do so and not really caring so much that they're overpaying or or maybe a bit of both?
1: I think it's a bit of both with an emphasis on the latter. Um, Jumping the market, you definitely have to pay a premium. So I saw a few quotes from executives that basically said, yeah, um, if you jump the market, you are, (laughs) you have to pay more because the selling team um, has an incentive to get the highest bid and, and they're, thought process usually well let's get multiple bidders and sometimes you have to wait until the deadline often to get the final 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 so if you if you say no no no, i want him now then they're gonna have to say well then you're gonna have to overpay because we were waiting for the final final bid right so what's your final final now and it has to be even more than that and so you know what i mean i think you there is a real economic you know, principle there of jumping the market because you're bypassing, from the seller's point of view, the opportunity to get the highest offer from somebody else. So you have to over, in effect, overpay for the highest offer. So that's what the angels did, I think, with getting to Um And the fact that it came right on the heels of the news that Shohei Tani was taken off the market um, suggests to me that it was the owner saying, telling his GM, "Go for it." We know Artie Moreno has been, you know, very much involved in the past with trades so you know i'm reading into it a little bit but it seems like that's the pattern is he's like once he made the decision to keep otani then you know i'll help wakes this basically and say go for it and so overpay for giolito uh because they needed another starter and um and yeah and that's that's the main thing but yes obviously we see a supply and demand balance and we've had some comments on twitter about the, hey don't you guys take that into account we do a little bit but we can't like overshoot it we're, we're kind of we i think Perhaps we 're cautious to a fault because we we also tend to in we also see that the market somewhat tends to stabilize as we get closer to the market as more bidders come online, maybe the buyers and the sellers become clearer, so the imbalance kind of shifts a little bit towards more balance, and so we can 't just say, "Oh yeah, everything 's imbalanced," and then have it shift again and then that 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 's foolish, so we try not to do that too much, but obviously early in the market, yes it 's going to seem more imbalanced because you have this disparity between buyers and sellers especially for starting pitching. Starting pitching is the thing most contenders want most of and there's very little of it to deal with. So people are overreaching for the somewhat capable arms like Lance Lynn <laughs> even though they're not aces like okay. And then in the Dodgers case for that one, you know, they have so they have such a deep farm that it barely made a dent. They're not going to miss Nick Nestrini because they've got so many other guys like him or better than him. So, it's like there's just kind of a common sense aspect to that. Like when you're you have too much money in your pocket, you know, it's burning your hole in your wallet, as my mom used to say. You know, you're not going to miss that ten dollar bill. So that's kind of what I see that Dodgers trade as.
0: Yeah, I think the Angels are such an edge case. They're such an outlier. It's such a unique situation. And as we've said before, the. The model isn't built to, to reflect what each individual team is doing. It's not built for the margins. It's built on the aggregate, right? It's saying that this is how the average team would value this player. Obviously, the calculus is a lot different for the Angels. I think there's extra incentive for them to jump the market because once you've decided to pull Shohei Otani off the market, that you're not even going to listen on trade offers anymore, you're taking away the flexibility to, to pivot on deadline day. Right. If they were still listening to him on him up until the deadline and they couldn't put together a trade they liked for a guy like Giolito for for impact starter to improve their team, then they could write on a dime flip and take the best offer they have for Otani. And that's what they're doing. But. Since they've taken him off the market, since they've said, nope, we're not even listening anymore, that really creates kind of a time crunch for them, because if they sit on their hands and try and get the White Sox to budge off of Edgar Cuero as the centerpiece, because they say, no, that's an overpay, they could be left sitting, you know, clock ticking last few minutes until the deadline, and they haven't made an addition, and they've just kept Otani with the same crummy Angels team that's <laughs> that hasn't competed so far and crossing their fingers that it works out, and that's not the spot that they want to be in at all, so... I think there's extra incentive to overpay extra incentive to jump the market and i think it's very fair to view that as an outlier and i also want to emphasize that it, like we've said before an overpay doesn't mean it was a bad trade doesn't mean it was the wrong decision necessarily i put up a poll on on twitter or x or whatever the hell we're calling it now and the overwhelming response to it the the four options i gave were what do you think on the deal overpay and bad for LA, overpay but good for LA, fair trade or underpay. And overwhelmingly, 48% of people said it was an overpay, but it was a good deal for the Angels. And I think that's where I settle as well, where they were dealing from a position of surplus here. They have Logan Ohoppy as their top prospect and catcher of the future. And I don't think that alone is enough of an argument to say this was a good trade, because just because you have a star rookie catcher, doesn't mean you should trade the second best good prospect rookie catch or good good catching prospect doesn't mean you just go flip him for a bag of peanuts right you there's still even if you're more comfortable moving that guy in general you still want to get full value for him or as close to it as you can yeah. yeah otherwise you're just working very inefficiently you're not you're not maximizing your resources uh but this obviously wasn't them trading Quero for a bag of peanuts it was for two very good arms that are going to help their team so i i think it I think it just makes all the sense in the world. I'm I'm not worried that our model got something wrong in that deal by any means. I mean, maybe it was a touch high on Kai Bush the second piece there, but the prospects are always kind of nebulous for us anyway, since we use yeah. outside sources. It was um, actually Baseball America had just updated, and so we
1: hadn't flown, we hadn't um, pushed that value update until the next day, where both Quero and, and Bush, interestingly enough, dropped down. Uh, so. Bush dropped down to I think like three point nine. So he basically lost about four points quero a little bit, but so still an overpay, but not as egregious as we first thought based on the new rankings.
0: Yeah, and that's always gonna be out of our hands of we we're at the mercy of these updates and we are improving how how quickly we can push them live once we have them, but we're we're waiting on these prospect people a lot of the time. Yeah. And there's just only so much we can do about that. Whereas the teams they have their current evaluations of these guys, right? They're sending scouts out to watch these guys the day before they trade for them. Uh, right. we don't exactly have the resources for that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so let's see, is, is there anything else you want to touch on from a larger market perspective?
1: I, you know, I just want to make one general point. Um, you know, these days, most GMs are rational. There's a couple are still old school. There's a couple of owners who sort of don't get it. And they get involved like Jim Crane or Eddie Marino or the guy in Colorado. But um, most GMs are very rational and they think like, um, you know, they, they think in terms of asset valuation, right? And they're always trying to improve their, their asset valuation, right? They're always looking for more surplus value in a general sense. But I find it interesting that in the deadline, so, but they have, their goals are twofold. One is to win and the other is to, you know, use, maximize the value of the resources, as you put it. So our model is a bias towards maximizing the resources, right? So in a deadline situation where the only opportunity to augment your team, if you want to win, is to, you know, as we get the trade market, you're you're weighing both you see a lot of gms kind of hedging and high like yeah we're thinking about the long term we don't want to overspend we want to be smart about it what they're saying is they're trying to balance the motivation to win with the motivation to maximize their resources um and i'm getting kind of economic speaky here and i apologize but that's what we're balancing so our model is they have you maximized your resources yes a lot of fans are thinking oh you're just trying to win, right? Which totally makes sense. So those two sort of levers are going on at the same time here in this trade deadline. And so in some cases, like in Artie Moreno, We'll just push the wind lever, you know. And you know, Steve Cohen of the Mets, God bless him, very much a stock trader. Very much, okay, I'm gonna cut my losses. This bet, you know, this this trade didn't work, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put a stop loss on it. This one did, so he's very much thinking about asset valuation. He also wants to win, but he's very sort of sensible and saying, you know what, I'll trade shares because it didn't work out. So I'm gonna get whatever I can for him. So, and a lot of GMS are thinking about asset valuation as well so it's interesting to see those two levers at work here and that's what i think is going on
0: i think what's interesting from the fan perspective is that they typically generally speaking you know i'm I'm not trying to make some overwhelming generalization here but more more of the casual fans they'll know their teams like top two or three prospects right like yankees fans would know jason dominguez and they've known Oswald Peraza and Anthony Volpe and and maybe a a name or two after that. And and there's other names that they know of, but that they just don't, don't think is highly of right. They, They don't properly assign them value. And so when they're talking about, you know, they're making these wild proposals for Juan Soto. Oh, he might be on the market and he's Juan Soto. Okay. The Padres can have anyone, but Jason Dominguez or Anthony Volpe or Oswald Peraza. And then it's like, okay, well, you, you recognize that those guys are valuable and you recognize that, you know, they they just have to give up a ton of talent to get Soto, but you're you're taking the guys off the market who would provide that value. And then the flip side of it is if they're trading for someone smaller, then as long as it's not one of those top names, it seems like they're usually pretty fine. And so it's this, it's just a lack of understanding of value, which like makes sense because... I can't keep track of every prospect in baseball. Very few people can. That's what the prospects experts are for. And and then we use their information, apply it, apply some adjustments on our end, and it spits out a number for us. And and that makes it all a lot easier. But it, it is very easy for fans to get into this mindset of, okay, this is our one untouchable guy in the organization or our two or three untouchable guys in the organization. And we don't really care what other prospects our team gives up as long as they go add pieces to win. Whereas or even from the other perspective, you know, if you're if you're a seller, hey, we want but we know we can't get this guy, but we want all these other prospects. Well, teams just don't do that. Teams do value those those players that are the fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth best prospects in their system, they value them as they should because they're still talented future big leaguers who can make an impact at some point. And I think there's just an overwhelming focus on the fan side on those top couple guys and that all trades are just centered around where, whether you do or don't give up those guys and nothing else really matters. And that leads to some of the misconceptions and, you know, misevaluations, and people being surprised that we have something like, like the Lance Lynn trade as an overpay when, Oh, Hey, all they gave up was this guy I've never heard of this Nestrini guy who isn't in the Dodgers right. like top seven. And so how yeah. could that be an overpay? But he still does have value. Just because you haven't heard of him doesn't mean he doesn't have value, right?
1: Yeah. And so just to add to that point, um, so the common sort of heuristic is, oh, we gave up our number seven prospect and our number 11. I don't care. I've never heard of these guys but that number seven prospect could be higher than some other team's number two or three prospect, right? Cause it's all, it, you know, no farm team is, no farm system is the same. Everybody's weighted differently. So there's that because they're just sort of grasping at how to sort of mentally calculate it, which is what we're doing for them, by the way, we're calculating it for them, but they'll still do that anyway.
0: Um, and so
1: that I think is going on um, as well.
0: Yeah. That, that's a common <laughs> frustration. Yeah. On on our end of of we see people like oh it was only it was only their fifth prospect they're fine but your fifth prospect can still be pretty valuable if you're a team like the Dodgers or the Rays and you just churn out these guys like nobody's business your fifth prospect is probably better than the fifth prospect on the Mets I guess or, or pick yeah, pick your right. favorite yeah. underperforming farm system yeah
1: yeah <laughs> I think the other thing they do is um so the the some of the more publicly available sites like the MLB pipeline they haven't updated it all year they're still dealing with they're still showing preseason rankings so those are often very out of date so i wouldn't go by them and there's been some cautions on twitter about that so i'll just reiterate that point too
0: and i think those are even more confusing because i think they do update with they do update with graduations and they do update with uh like draftees i'm pretty sure and international signings but You're right. They don't update the actual like positioning of the other guys based on how they're performing and how how scouts are seeing them and things like that. And so that it means that their their rankings are like mostly out of date, but also kind of recent. And I wouldn't blame someone for looking at a list that had a recent draftee in it and being like, oh, that's that's been updated. This is the current ranking. And and it's just not so confusing. Right. Okay. uh, anything else to touch on before we jump into the trades? Let's dive in. Cool. All right, let's start with this Scherzer deal. It's it's the big win for us so far. Um, the Rangers acquired Scherzer, who we had at negative 16.4 million in median trade value, and some cash. Uh, we haven't gotten a specific number on the cash yet. Um, you're, depends on how you estimate it. Uh, it's somewhere in that like 35 to 36 million dollar range uh, from the Mets in exchange for just one prospect, shortstop Luis Angel Acuna, who we had at 20.1. And it, it depends again what the actual cash amount is. There's a little bit of leeway there, but uh, no matter what, this one is well within margin of error. This one is absolutely accepted by the model. Lines up almost perfectly, and it, it just feels good, John. Right?
1: <laughs> it feels
0: great. Um, you
1: know, Steve Cohen follows us on Twitter. I probably shouldn't announce that, but it's true. And I'm not. I'm thinking. I'm not to not to suggest that he's saying, oh, what do they say it should be? But I think I think it's just a it's a it's a fun fact um when these lined up you know the mets trades have lined up pretty well with us so far so um so i was pleased to see that this one did as well um when when that's funny when um any martino first reported the cash amount it was like what <laughs> and then he corrected himself like okay good <laughs> so that one felt good
0: yeah and it just makes all the sense in the world right that scherzer he has this illustrious track record he's been a fantastic pitcher as as recently as last season he was really really good when he pitched and this is really his first blemish we've we've seen his first step back and so you know is it just a blip is it just a you know a weird start to the season it seems like the vibes in new york have not been great all year or is it the the beginning of the end and the rangers are going to gamble that it's just a blip and it's not the beginning of the end um but there's very little risk for them involved from a financial standpoint, even if he does take a step back or you know, maybe not not a four ERA guy down the stretch, but maybe he's more in that like three five to three seven five, you know, mid rotation guy, not your frontline ace hall of famer. That's still very valuable to the Rangers right now, especially without deGrom. And given what they'll be paying him from a salary perspective, it'll it comes out to something like five or six million down the stretch this year. And then like 15 ish million for 2024. Yeah. And that's, that's totally fair. And you exactly. can also understand given Scherzer's upside and his track record, why there is then a huge amount of surplus on top of that, that makes him worth giving up a in this deal. So it all, when you, when you kind of math it out like that and spread out what they're actually paying him because of the cash that the Mets are including, it it just, it lines up in a way that makes a lot of intuitive sense. It just might not have, you know, if you were just trying to blindly propose a trade like this and, and didn't have our values, you didn't have the model, it would be wildly difficult for you to get to this this number and, and to parse out like, well, should they have given 35 million or should they have given 40 million or should they have given 20 million or what's the fair amount here? But when you kind of math it all out like that, like the model does, it, it makes sense. It lines up.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny because we oftentimes this time of year, we get uh, criticism who says, oh, you guys, you know, why do we have a minus there? That guy's a big star. He doesn't have negative value. And it's like, well, the contract matters. The money matters. And they don't believe it. But I'm sorry, but this is a validation point that it does matter quite a bit.
0: Yeah, and we always get these comments of, you know, you guys don't have enough of a premium on star players and, you know, star player should never be negative if if teams are interested in them and it's like well no (laughs) like like you can you can say that as much as you want you can have that as your opinion but what do you have to support that we have and not to get on too high of a horse here or anything like that but we have a few years of data now that very clearly support our side of it you know this is just another another feather in the cap is that a saying i don't know um mm-hmm. but this goes up there with the Arenado trade from a couple years ago as like very, very clear examples that even star level players, even desirable star level level players with a lot of teams interested in them, they can be underwater. They can be paid more than their projected field value. And if they are, team's not gonna trade for them straight up. They're gonna need the old team to either kick in a prospect or to kick in some other form of surplus value, to kick in cash, whatever. That's what they need to facilitate the deal. Nobody yeah. would have traded for Scherzer straight up. That's that's just a fact.
1: Yeah, and and but we're still going to get that. I mean, it happens over and over and over again. So they'll look at our model and say, oh, you have Mike Trout as negative value. There's no way!
0: And like, all right, here we go again. <laughs> and I think there is like, there is... there's an argument there that they're making that is valid right of you know when you get to this this upper echelon this star level of player and we can we can debate whether scherzer should still be at that level but just while we're on the topic um once you get to this upper echelon there is such a supply and demand question like there there's a very low quantity of players that are at that level and they are available so infrequently that you know, if if the Angels DFA'd Mike Trout today, obviously they're not going to. If they did, I don't think I would be blown away if someone just straight up claimed him and took his whole contract. I, obviously, I'd be blown away by, by the other events that transpired to get us to that point. But, like, in this weird hypothetical, I don't think I would be blown away if the Phillies said this is our one chance to get Mike Trout and they they took on that whole contract despite it being underwater. But once again, that's an outlier team. We aren't modeling to the outliers, to the teams that have all the financial resources in the world and can afford to make these big quote-unquote mistakes from a surplus value standpoint. We're modeling exactly. to the aggregate.
1: Exactly. Now do the Rays. Now do the brewers. You know, you start to add up everybody and you say, well, no, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. They might. They might. Well, they'll be rational they'll be rational. And so that's the aggregate.
0: <laughs> it's a tough balance where obviously only one team can make a trade for a player at one time. Right. But you can't model it to what the person who pays most is, is what, what their maximum is going to be like the person willing to pay the most, what their maximum would be. If that makes sense. Because they,
1: because they may not want him or they may be over budget already. And so you can't just assume, you know, the, the Mets or the Yankees are going to do that because it may not be the right circumstances for them. And And by the way, The Yankees have, and now they're getting all sorts of criticism for being too old and bloated, and have all these underwater contracts like Donaldson, and Lemahieu, and Rizzo, and all their fans are like, "Why don't we get rid of this dead weight?" Well, two years ago, you know, you wouldn't have said it. They were thinking, "Hey, we got Donaldson, we got star power." So, like, it does—you can't have it both ways, people.
0: Right. Exactly. Um, what else is there from this trade? I I guess it's interesting what happened with Scherzer's no-trade clause and his. 2024 player option so uh, this didn't adjust this didn't impact the values at all uh because the as far as we know the contract itself hasn't been restructured in any way you know he's not making more money in exchange for accepting the or waiving the no trade clause all that's happening is he, he will be exercising his player option for 2024 which we already expected him to do we had him projected to be worth far less than $43 million on the field in 2024, and so when your your field value is lower than your salary, if it's an option, you're going to take it because that's saying you're not going to get $43 million on the open market, so let's take the money that you have. So we already projected that option to be exercised, so nothing really changed there. You, could, you can maybe argue that it's a point in favor of the Rangers here because... I guess there was potential otherwise of he just is lights out down the stretch and does decide to opt out and they lose him. Like he gets to the point where he has a surplus over that 43 number and tests the free agent market. I think that's highly, highly unlikely to have ever happened though. So I don't think that's a a notable shift in any way. Um, So, so that end of it. And then as far as waiving the no trade clause, um, we haven't heard specifically what happened. I think it was like very very vaguely discussed as accommodations have been made or something like that. Like he's, he might be getting like tickets for his family to Rangers games or something like that or a suite or, or whatever. Uh, but it doesn't seem like it's anything like significant and monetary. Like, like I said, there's no actual adjustments to his salary that would impact uh, his value in a notable way and change the calculus of this deal uh but he did waive that no trade clause and he did he's supposedly getting something for it and maybe someday we'll find out what that is uh
1: yeah i mean he's also getting the benefit of there's also um no state income taxes in texas as opposed to new york so that's an automatic benefit for him as well and you know i mean clearly he had a conversation with Mets uh ownership and management and. Maybe they, um, you know, maybe the message was, hey, we're obviously throwing in a towel for this year. Don't know about next year. Whereas the Rangers are all in this year and presumably all in next year, given their roster. So, you know, he's he's a competitive guy, obviously, and he wants to win. He wants to be back in the playoffs. So this is the better chance for him. It could be just as simple as that.
0: Yeah, and given the contract, it's a difficult... Tr- like, if, if Scherzer has decided given his conversations with the Mets front office and everything, if he's decided that he wants out, if he's decided they're not going to contend this year and he wants to go pitch in the playoffs this year, you're already limiting your market to contenders. Okay. And then from that, you're limiting your market to contenders who can afford at least some of that salary, because you're not, it's very unlikely that a team like them, even like the Mets would pay down an entire salary that large. And it's very unlikely that another team would give up all the prospects that it would cost for a team to pay down the salary all that much, right? Like if if the Rays wanted to get Scherzer for free, you know, paying him the league minimum the rest of this year and next year, it would have cost them a boatload of prospects. And I think they would have shied away from that. So it's a very limited market, you know, theoretically the no trade clause gives you some leverage, but it's not like there were that many destinations that made a lot of sense for Scherzer. It was really like the Rangers, The Astros, the Dodgers, maybe the Yankees. That's kind of it. The Phillies, if you squint. I don't know. It's a tough, there's a small market there. And beyond that, it has to be somewhere that actually is really interested in Scherzer, is willing to give up a prospect of Acuna's caliber, because that's clearly the type of guy that the Mets were targeting. They weren't interested in a deal where they paid down Scherzer's contract you know, paid it down 16 million and got a fringe player back. That's not what they were interested in. They wanted to use this as an opportunity to buy a high upside prospect to inject Mm -hmm. talent into the farm system. So Mm -hmm. getting all the stars to align like that was pretty difficult. And you can't really count on that happening with other teams. So if you're Scherzer and you want out, this is probably your best bet. So that the no trade clause maybe gives you some leverage, but I don't think it took him too much convincing to sign off on it. Right.
1: And all, all the points you just made pretty much apply to Verlander too, because he's making the same salary and, you know, there's actually complications in his contract as well. So, you know, by the same token, if they're shopping Verlander and want to get an impact prospect back, you know, now their options are even more limited because now the Rangers presumably won't, they're, they're, they're set. Right. So the Astros may be one, but there's not much on the farm that you could call an impact player. So that's maybe why the interest there is not so high. Phillies kind of a similar situation, you know, like you know where you can where can you get that exact combination of of things in you know in a team match? That that is the hard part, I think, now with Verlander.
0: Right, because it's it's got to be enough, especially if you're Steve Cohen and. You know, theoretically, they could have kept Scherzer and Verlander and Cohen still would have spent some money on that team in the offseason, right? Like, it's not like they were totally, I mean, as far as we know, yeah. they weren't tapped out or anything. There's there's always room to spend for Cohen. Yeah. Um. So you have to be getting enough back in these trades. You know, it's not just the salary relief. You have to be getting something back that makes it worth it for you to potentially be harming the 2024 team when you want to be winning again that year. Um, and I think in the Scherzer deal, they absolutely got that. I think Acuna is a really nice piece for them. You know, he's one of those rare cases where he has the name value because he's related to a superstar, but also like, he can kind of back it up. Like he's a really good prospect. So I think he's a good get for them. And I think they'd be looking for similar upside in a Verlander deal. And you're right. Like it's, it's tough to find a great match for that. I think the best match on paper is the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. and you figure even after adding Lynn, they're probably not done there with how battered their rotation has been and how much how much youth they're just relying on and also just how deep their farm system is they can afford it, how how high they let their budgets go at times. Um, but it is, it is a commitment because it is a whole lot of money they're committing to for 2024, and we've seen the Dodgers be one of these teams that likes to try and reset their luxury tax totals every couple of years, and... They tried to do that this past off season and kind of screwed it up. So even that's not the that's probably the cleanest fit out there. And even that's not a very clean fit. So it's it's tough. It's gonna be tough to find a partner for Verlander like you're saying. I could also see the Mets just saying, "Hey, we moved one guy, cleared up some money. Verlander, we like his metrics a little bit better. We like him." better as a guy to lead the rotation in 2024 we're hanging on to him and we're making another run next year i could very easily see that
1: yeah same and verlander has that very interesting contract um vesting option for 2025 um so if he if he pitches um, more than 140 innings in 2024 and stays healthy, then it automatically vests as a $35 million player option for 2025. And what that does is it creates an interesting scenario. We've chosen to leave that out of, the, uh, of our calculation, and I'll explain why. Um, because basically, if he's p- pitching very well in 2024 as a 41-year-old, mind you, um, then that $35 million is like, okay, fine, he's worth it. Um but if he's not pitching well, then they the team that has him, whether it's the Mets or whoever they trade him to, you know, can actually manipulate that a little bit. And maybe there's a grievance issue there, but if he's not healthy, then it's obvious. But if he's struggling uh, from a performance standpoint, you could maybe string him along a little bit so he doesn't meet that 440 uh, inning um, limit. And then... And then say, Oh, it did invest. And so you're off the hook for the thirty-five million dollars in 2025. That is a big point. And that is a big complication point, I think. And it could get a little tricky, could get a little ugly. So I think that's a that's a factor as well in any, any Verlander negotiations.
0: Yeah, and we had internal discussions on yeah, this and right. just how complicated it is, how hairy it is, how to how we should factor his salary and in, in, in the values. And what I kind of settled on was just that, yes, there's a lot of concern there. Yes, it is grounds for a potential grievance if they screw around with Verlander next year and he finishes at 139 in two-thirds innings or something. I think he's going to be rightfully upset about the money that costs him. The union's going to be upset about that. But given the amount of money and given how much it could outweigh his field value for that season you know how underwater it could be how i guess overpaid you could you could say that he is for that year it's tens of millions of dollars at a minimum if not that full 35 million and i think that's worth risking a grievance or at least teams would view that as being worth risking a grievance especially since the grievance process has not been all that kind to players in recent years so why are we talking
1: about 2025 Verlander because that matters right now if he's on
0: the market because
1: teams will be thinking about this scenario and maybe don't want that risk which limits his market today even further
0: right it's this has been an interesting deadline for things like that because it's not just Scherzer and Verlander with with options making things complicated but also Stroman and Eduardo Rodriguez they have these opt-outs that kind of give teams pause and you know, maybe the math is a little bit cleaner on those two. It's a little more obvious what we would expect them to do, but there is still uncertainty baked in. And all it takes is they get traded to a new team. They stink there. They have a six ERA in 10 starts. And then all of a sudden they're opting in and you get, you got to consider that as a possibility. That, yeah. That's and you get one of the, the bad factors. contract. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now I think, I think the benefit on those two is that even if they are, If they do have a poor stretch and go ahead and opt in, I don't think it could be disastrous for either of them. They're both pretty reasonable contracts that they'd be opting into. Uh, For Strowman, it's just a single year. And then for Eduardo Rodriguez, it's three years and like 49 million or something, 54, somewhere in that range. But like totally reasonable price for a mid to back end arm that's like totally in line with what he might get as a free agent anyway. So not as much risk, but there is inherent risk. And especially for a guy like Rodriguez, who's had injury issues and off field issues. If he just was a zero for that entire span, then that's $50 million down the drain.
1: Yeah. We don't know what his off field issues were last year, but basically he went AWOL for like half the season and then he had injury issues. And so that's got to scare teams away a little bit, which is why, you know, on the, on the one hand, you could say he's outperforming his numbers a little bit. So he's probably going to opt out on the other hand. Maybe that weighs on him too a little bit. It's a very tricky call.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's move on to the next deal here. Uh we, we touched on this a bit earlier, so maybe we don't need to spend too long on it. But this Lucas Giolito trade for the Angels. Um I I think people and, and I think maybe the Angels included here are overvaluing Giolito a bit. You know, we, we talked about it last time that he had that really strong run from I think it was 2019 to 2021, where he looked like, you know, he, he showed flashes of being an ace for sure. I think when you look at the numbers on the aggregate, it looks more like a number two, like a really solid number two. And that's kind of how t- how it seems like fans and the media and the angels in this deal are valuing him as like, yes, he's a rental, but like he's going to be a frontline starter. He's going to start the second or third playoff game for us in a division series. And that's just not who he's been the last two years. He's had home run troubles. He hasn't quite missed as many bats. He's been walking more guys. He's kind of just been a little bit worse across the board. And that means he's more of a, maybe a three, but probably closer to a four type of guy. And I don't know. It's just interesting how, I mean, I mean we know teams are willing to pay for upside. And theoretically, that's still in there somewhere. It wouldn't surprise anyone if he had a hot stretch, had a... Th- 3.10 ERA down the stretch for the Angels, but it's interesting the gap in perception on Giolito and how that seems to have translated to what he, he was actually traded for, what what they actually paid to get him.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, look, the thing is, to his credit, it's a very simple case. There's no, just like you talked about with Rodriguez and Strowman, there's no baggage, there's no overhanging contract issue. It's clean rental, right? He's decent, and there's mar- and the market is starved for anybody sort of. I've noticed what what they're what teams are striving for is reliability to some degree. Like he's not you know super volatile. He's pretty much you know what you're getting. You know, yes, of course there's variance in his starts, and that's going to be the the norm from team to team. But you know, he's a pretty reliable three, right? Okay, so you can kind of count on that. You know what you're paying for. So, but a reliable three in a normal deadline market might have been overshadowed by some really exciting options, which would have meant that he would have probably been been paid closer to fair value in a trade market. And this in this market where there aren't really too many options, he's like, whoa, he's like the bell of the ball, right? And then they and then further they jump the market as we talked about earlier and overpaid for that reason too.
0: Right. And then on on the Lopez side of things, we've talked extensively about how tricky relievers are. And he's just another case of that, where he was legitimately one of the best relievers in baseball last year. He was just dominant. I think he was worth pulling it up right here. It was it was over, yeah. It was two wins by fan graphs, which is kind of insane for for a reliever only pitching 65 innings. But he was just dominant. He he got outs. He had a 193 FIP, really impressive stuff. And and it was on the back of really impressive stuff, right? He throws triple digits. He's he's got. he's he's unhittable when he's on but this year he's walking more guys he's giving up more homers and the stuff is still great I I believe by stuff plus uh the you know Saris metric he he grades like very very well um but everything else is taking kind of a step back and, and everything across the board sees him as more of like a middle reliever than the like dominant late inning arm he was last year and so it's a question of who you're getting I think teams are always willing to overpay for stuff at the deadline though. I think that's kind of a common trend. Teams will see that their pitches move well that they throw hard and say we can tweak that or maybe even even less hands-on approach. All it takes is him finding the zone for a couple months and we've he's paid dividends for us, right? You know, all it takes is a hot stretch from him. You don't need you're not acquiring this guy with the idea of he needs to be a good late inning reliever for six years to make this deal worth it for us. You're acquiring him with the thought of if he just gets hot, he could carry us into the postseason and he could carry us to a World Series title by locking down the late innings for us. And yeah. I think that potential, where it's just they need to, like, I think you would figure that a guy like this. Is more likely to click and be that dominant arm down the stretch than maybe a comparable valued arm, but with less stuff like Andrew Chafin or someone like that.
1: Yeah, and you know we can get in the Marlon Twins trade, but that was basically the trade off. There was, oh, he's got upside. Oh, he's reliable. And <laughs> this is another case of one of those guys, right? But the, to be to be fair though, I, I, the Angels don't really have a track record of fixing relievers. I know they they made a very savvy um, free agent picked up uh, last off season with Carlos Estevez and they recognized that he had stuff and that it wasn't playing well in Colorado. So they moved him to sea level and they said, hey, now try it and it's moving and it's great. But that was sort of like uh, a lot of teams figured that out, right? So it's not necessarily unique to the Angels. But the Angels besides that don't really have a track record like say the Mariners do, just developing um, relievers out of you know out of nowhere. So I wonder if they're the right team to turn over just to get the most out of two months of Lopez. I may be overthinking it, but I probably just like they figured, oh, okay, it's worth a shot.
0: Right, and I think I think it's a it's a good transition into that uh, Mar- the Marlins and Twins trade there just to touch on it really quick because I think teams might might view it that way that they need they need a couple guys in the late innings that they like truly trust you know lockdown high velocity high stuff that that's the mold, the the mold right now that's that's what every team is chasing and the marlins picked up a guy like that in right-handed pitcher jorge lopez uh, we had him at negative 0.5 because he has not been good this season and he also wasn't very good after coming over to the twins last season uh, in a trade from the Orioles so he was dominant in that first half last season with the Orioles wipe out stuff throwing really hard and it just kind of hasn't been there with the Twins and so the Marlins are taking a chance on that that he can be that guy for them because that's one of the things that they need you know they have a handful of those middle inning bridge types that help them get into the late innings but they have not had any kind of luck in the late innings it's been it's been a mess this year even with some upgrades or supposed upgrades they made in the offseason so i think they identify that as a clear need for them whereas the twins they have they have those guys they have yohan duran is the main one who they really trust in those late inning high leverage spots they have griffin jacks who's been very good um, brock stewart out of nowhere throws really hard now and has been really good for them and they just need help bridging those innings and so they get Dylan Floro at 1.2 million in median trade value and he fits their need there too. So, you know, I think I think it's fair to like the Twins side of this deal more, which our values clearly do. It's it's 1.2 for the Twins and 0.5 for the Marlins. But I think both teams kind of identified what they wanted, what they needed here and traded for it and uh, I I think I like this trade. <laughs> I think it works out I, well. And the the other wrinkle for the Marlins is that if Lopez does bounce back, he has another year of team control whereas Floro's just a rental.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what the main interest from the Marlins perspective is. Otherwise, they don't really get it. Like if it was just rental for rental, I think, you know, you go with the more reliable arm in Floro. Um because he's got the track record. He's been very more or less consistent. His underlying metrics are fine. So, I think I like the Twins side of this better for two months and you can always pick up relievers there they're always available in the off season so it, you know i don't think it's going to bother them that oh we missed one year of jorge lopez it wasn't very good for us we'll so find somebody else um but the marlins figure okay maybe they can turn it around they have a good pitching program there so who knows so yeah whatever
0: yeah all right let's uh Bounce back here to the other big starting pitcher deal. The Dodgers picking up Lance Lynn. Uh, We had him at negative 0.4. They also got Joe Kelly in this deal at negative 0.6. And it was pretty surprising to both of us, I think, that there was no cash involved in here. So it's just a straight negative (laughs) one headed to the Dodgers. Uh, In exchange, they sent the White Sox Nick Destrini, right-handed pitching prospect at 7.6. Jordan Leisure, a right-handed relief prospect at 0.1. And outfielder Trace Thompson at 0.4. And this one gets rejected as an overpay because that's you know 8.1 to the White Sox negative one to the Dodgers um the money here is really what's driving all of this right where Lance Lynn and Joe Kelly have both been pretty bad in 2023 uh Lynn more so than Kelly I think Kelly you look under the hood and there's enough to like there and he's always been this kind of inconsistent guy but he found some success with the Dodgers in his last stint there and so I think it it makes a lot of sense that they'd be adding him. It makes a lot of sense that they'd value him higher than negative 0.6 internally. So, I don't think I don't think I'm taking any issue with that end of it, but I think it's pretty clear that Lynn is underwater, right? And even if even if you want to make the most favorable argument possible for him that he's not underwater, I don't think he's got a ton of surplus. I think it's really hard to make the argument that Lynn has enough surplus to be worth a guy like nastrini i think that's i think that's a losing argument i think the model is correct on this one and lynn has just been bad this like he, he's giving up so many home runs this year and this is after kind of already taking a step back in 2022 and yes he's missing more bats but that's just kind of on the k per nine perspective i'm pulling up his k rate here it's his his actual k rate which you know is a percentage of batters face and not a, a factor of how many innings he's thrown that's kind of right in his normal lines you know it's it's lower than 2019 lower than 2021 a bit higher than 2022 it's it's nothing superlative there but his walk rate is up compared to his last few years and his home run rate is up so it just seems like it's it's he's starting to decline right starting beginning of the end here he's 36 he's going to fall off at some point and he's owed a lot of money he's owed 19 million this year and then And so remaining from that is about, you know, six or seven million uh, the rest of the way. And then another one million on his buyout for 2023, uh, 2024. And so when you put all that together, I think it's even incredible that he's at fair value here, given how poorly he's pitched. And that's just on the back of the upside and what you're hoping he can get back to. And he's always been a solid innings eater. And granted, that's that's more so what the Dodgers need, right? They they have some upside, but they need innings solid innings that they can rely on. It's still just surprising to see them overpay for this. I don't know. I I'm still not 100% on board with this for them. I understand why they would do it, you know, money isn't as big of a factor to them and as you mentioned before, Nostrini is kind of buried in that farm system. There's plenty of guys more talented than him. But I don't I don't know why this is the deal that you jump the market to go get done. Right. I I think they could have waited and gotten better, better value here or better value in another arm. But that's at least my perspective.
1: I mean, yeah. So the market is kind of bereft of quality starting pitching. Everybody needs quality starting pitching. Everybody's got holes in their rotation because of injuries. You know, for the most part, that's been the theme. And or they really want uh, somebody who can be there for them as the guy in the playoffs. And there really hasn't been much on the market. And so we talked about that with Giolito. Okay, so they're overpaying for the mid guys. And here's another example of a team overpaying for a mid guy like Lynn. Um He's not that bad, but he's not that good either. And to your point, his home run uh, rate has spiked a little bit. So, you know, which, you know, makes you wonder about like, is his fastball getting more and more hittable? Maybe they're barreling it more. Um, you know, I'm just looking at Nestrini's numbers and they did kind of tail off a bit this year as he's, you know, I wouldn't say repeating double eggs. He just had a little bit of time in double egg last year, but his double egg numbers are just sort of mediocre this year. And so maybe his prospect ranking will dip a little bit. And so maybe this trade will look a little bit more fair, you know, a couple months from now. It's like, oh, just, you know, and you know, it's not like he had that high a pedigree because he was a fourth-round pick. Um, so, you know, you could make the case that basically it's closer to fair than it first looks, right? Cause Lynn is, because it's a seller's market, and, you know, Lynn is at least Mr. Reliable, the leading innings for you, which is what you need if you're the Dodgers with all the injuries you've had. And Nestrini's not that great. Maybe, so fine. <laughs> it's not going to make a dent in your like You can kind of squint and see it, right? So I'm not going to lose too much sleep over this one.
0: Yeah, not losing sleep over it, but just I think when I when I look at this trade, and I think you make really good points about when generally speaking, when when a trade isn't accepted by the model, or it's a major overpay or something like that, my first look is to say like, okay, is there anywhere here that like, either something like we mentioned with the prospects where like, okay, maybe this prospect is set to go down in the future once we get an update from our sources. Or is there something where, like, I think this is a type of player that the model might be overvaluing? Like, was the model too high on this player or too low on this player? Like, I, you, our, our first reaction, or I, I guess I don't want to speak for you, but my first reaction is to kind of to, to approach it with scrutiny. And rather than saying right off the bat, yep, the Dodgers overpaid here, it's like, okay, does this line up with my perception? Does this line up with how I view baseball and, and, and from my experience of evaluating trades what what makes sense here does this actually seem like an overpaid or does it seem like something the model might have gotten wrong and on this one i think no matter i think even when you squint and look at it like maybe nastrini comes down a little bit and like maybe for the dodgers personally lynn is worth a little bit more than that um i think you can get it into a territory where it's quote unquote accepted by the model by by kind of squinting and, and adjusting those numbers a little bit but i still think it's it's a weird at least slight overpay by the dodgers and i'm not sure i'm not sure i see the argument for jumping the market for these guys i think i think there are enough options and the dodgers do have enough flexibility that i, I thought they could have waited i don't know it's it's not a huge deal you know i don't think they're losing any sleep over an astrini like you said and, and it's their money not mine <laughs> that they're paying these guys um and, and I also don't think they're done here. You know, if this was their one addition, I'd be scratching my head on it a lot more, but they still have time. I think Eduardo Rodriguez is a really interesting fit for them since they have the flexibility long-term to, to be able to take on that contract if he does opt in. So I like him as a fit, and, and that seems pretty easy. And I bet they do make another pitching addition. They might do more on offense, who knows. But uh, yeah, uh, I don't think, I think you're right. Not worth them or us losing any sleep over, but I think I'm a little bit more critical of the Dodgers on this one than you are. And, and which, which is totally fair. Totally valid. Yeah.
1: Fine.
0: Okay. Uh, Heading down the list here. Let's just touch on really quick. The other two deals that the Dodgers made here because they're, they're honestly along similar lines. The Dodgers are prioritized. Not, I don't want to say prioritizing, but the Dodgers are adding these guys who are in the midst of very bad seasons and hoping they rebound. And the Dodgers, as a team, are one we would trust more so to, to make that happen. But it's not going to happen every time, so they're they're kind of firing a few bullets here. Uh, so the other two deals they made, they acquired Kike Hernandez at negative three point five million and cash, which was reportedly two and a half million, from the Red Sox in exchange for a pair of minor league relievers, Nick Robertson at zero point five and Justin Hagenman at point 0.1. So again, there's no true cost to the Dodgers on this one. They're giving up a couple relief prospects and those are the least the non-elite relief prospects are like the least valuable trade asset one one would argue. Um and so it's it's not going to hurt their farm in any way and they're bringing back a guy who's having a really rough season, but fan favorite, clubhouse favorite, they know exactly what he brings. They know exactly how he fits in their organization and they can use him all over the field against left-handed pitching and that's kind of that that's what his job is and that's kind of what they needed so it does make a lot of baseball sense from that standpoint it just when you pair it with the other moves and and I'll go ahead and just get through the other one really quick they also picked up Ahmed Rosario who we had at 3.6 million from the Guardians in exchange for right handed pitcher Noah Syndergaard who we had at negative 2.2 and cash which was about 1.9 million to balance the salaries uh so the Hernandez deal was accepted straight up by the model uh this one Rosario deal was accepted as a minor overpay by Cleveland and so I think each of these deals on their own has their merits and then when you take a step back and look at the guys that the Dodgers are actually getting here it's like huh this isn't the the star-powered Dodgers making the big Manny Machado and you Darvish trades and all of that 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 we kind of grew familiar with and then the Turner Scherzer trade and and they make the big moves and get the stars this is a little bit different they're they're going to the scrap heap and like I said before they're a team we would trust to do that with some success but it's still kind of a tough sell to your fan base right that you're trading for all these guys having crummy seasons
1: I guess so I mean they do have a reputation of being kind of smart about scrap heap pickups you know you know, Andrew Friedman was, you know, running the Rays for a while, and that's what, that's part of what he made his living doing. So, um, you know, you can kind of squint and see something with Ahmed Rosario. Like, okay, he kind of, you know, his numbers are better against lefties, so he's the right-handed bat they've been talking about. But, you know, that's pretty much the same story for Kike Hernandez. Like, he's having trouble here, but it's not as bad when he hits from the right side against lefties. Okay, so they're sort of like... I don't know why they needed both of these guys. They're very similar, you know, both kind of bad infielders who are bad in general, but kind of sort of hit lefties. That's about it, you know? And so I don't know why they needed two of them, uh, but Syndergaard clearly was on the outs. And so they were done with him. So, um, you know, they, they didn't really cost them anything, even though they kicked in a few few bucks for that. And, um, and so, and to your point, the relievers and, you know, that was fine and they kicked in a few bucks there as well. So, it's all good. No, the Red Sox did, sorry. So it's all good uh, in terms of cash wise. It basically <laughs> kind of worked out the same from the Dodgers perspective. What I think is interesting from the um, Guardians perspective, uh, Ahmed Rosario was known as a, kind of a clubhouse leader. Now, obviously, the Guardians, we know the Guardians have kind of a roster crunch with too many infielders, kind of a logjam there. So they were waiting to play guys like, you know, Gabriel Arias and Tyler Freeman. And one could argue Andres Jimenez might be better at short than he is at second. So they wanted to kind of like, you know, trade from a surplus, I guess. And obviously Rosario was not having a great year, so they kind of get what they could from him. And when um, they lost Bieber, they lost some veterans starting pitching because they're going with mostly rookies outside of Savali. So maybe they think given their pitching uh, program, maybe they can find something in Syndergaard to turn around yeah I'm squinting here. <laughs> That's pretty much all I got both These are both just sort of you know uh bottom of the barrel resurrection trade you know shots for both teams
0: yeah to to close the book on the Dodgers really quick. Amed Rosario's defense has not rated well at all this season, mm-hmm. and I don't know it's it's weird that they're picking up a guy who Hits lefties, doesn't really hit righties, and doesn't really play defense at a very important defensive position. But it, I think it mostly just speaks to how weak the infield market is. There's really not a whole lot better than, than Rosario that's actually available right now. You know, it's it's Tim Anderson, who's also having a pretty terrible year and has a lot of the same questions that Rosario does. And Jaimer Candelario is the third baseman. He's not going to be playing shortstop for you. Like, there's, there's really nothing else I mean other than yeah. paying big for a guy like Tommy Edmund who's currently hurt and probably can't go step in and play shortstop for you tomorrow either so or or maybe like a Nicky Lopez who yeah has been
1: in the rumors like, who's very light hitting but a decent glove you know they, there's that kind
0: yeah so not not a whole lot better going on they just kind of got stuck in an unfortunate situation with the the Gavin Lux injury and none of their attempts to patch it up have worked so I guess in they're, they're gonna take the volume approach, right? Grab Hernandez and Rosario, see if one of them can get hot and, and take over at least some of the at bats at that position and, and help them out down the stretch.
1: It reminds me a little bit of what the Braves did with their outfield a couple of years ago. They they bought low on another Rosario and they bought low on Duval and they bought low on Soler and all those guys regressed positively and helped them win a World Series, right? So maybe that's a little bit in the back of the mind of the Dodgers. Just guessing. Yeah.
0: That's a good call. I hadn't thought about that. Um, the Guardian side of this, though... So, if any other team... You know, if most other teams did this trade and, and acquired Noah Syndergaard in exchange for a player we had has a positive value... And I know, not overwhelmingly positive value, but 3.6, that's that's a decent prospect that we figured they could have gotten for Rosario. Um, if If most other teams did this, I would just absolutely be very critical of them for it and very skeptical of them having any kind of success cleveland giving its pitching development machine is like one of the few teams that gets a bit of a pass on it right it's like it's like cleveland and houston and gosh i, I almost said the yankees but now i'm picturing you Noah know, Syndergaard on the yankees and that would be a disaster um but they're, they're one of the few teams that gets like a bit of a pass for a head scratcher like this one but like I just I thought Syndergaard was cooked I thought he was going to be DFA'd like he he wasn't pitching well on his rehab stint coming back from I believe yeah finger issue um he he didn't make he wasn't looking good then. He hasn't looked good for the Dodgers. He had all these, all this excitement when he signed with them. And like, oh, they're going to fix him. They're going to save his career. And he was saying, I'm going to be throwing 99 again. And now his fastball Velo's down two ticks this year. <laughs> like, it's a, by far a career low. He's averaging 92.8. And all of the other results have been pretty terrible as well. So I just don't know if there is anything left in the tank here. I mean, I, like I said, Guardians get the benefit of the doubt. I trust that they see something here beyond just we're going to fill some innings with a guy with an ERA over seven. Uh, I, I I trust that they see something there that they can at least get some use out of here. Maybe they even make him a reliever once some arms get healthy and, and he can just fire bullets in an inning and is more effective that way. But I, yeah, <laughs> I don't feel great about it for their perspective. Let's put it that way
1: again they have a pitching machine they're famous for their pitching you know they're 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 they have magicians somewhere in the organization who turn you know uh coal into gold you know with all these now granted they tend to do it with the younger guys not so much the veteran guys so we'll see but maybe they see something i trust cleveland and their pitching department to maybe see something there And again, with Bieber's injury, they needed at least one more veteran. So I think he's just an arm that has maybe something they can tweak. That's all I got.
0: Yeah, but I mean, the other end of that is the Dodgers also have a lot of those guys, right? They have those guys who can turn coal into gold on the pitching side. Maybe not to the same extent, but this isn't, you know, rescuing Syndergaard from the A's and their disaster of a development situation, and they're going to fix him and, and actually take a chance at it. You know, it's yeah. It's point. a weird, it's a weird trade, and I'm fascinated by it. And I'm <laughs> if they fix him, I'll I'll eat all my words. But weird trade. Um, okay. moving on, one other Marlins deal. Uh, this was actually the first sign, true sign of selling by the Mets is they traded their closer, right hand pitcher David Robertson at zero point three million, traded him to the Marlins in exchange for two. Teenage prospects, very young prospects, uh, infielder Marco Vargas, the headliner at 3.3, and catcher Ronald Hernandez at 0.8. Um, so, so on the Marlins side, like as I mentioned before, they needed some late inning help. They needed guys they really felt confident in in those last few innings. And Robertson has plenty of closing experience, late inning experience. And so it seems like they might have been willing to overpay a bit based on that kind of intangible need that they have. The Mets did very well here, though. Um, I I saw some Mets fans kind of upset that they got a couple teenagers for it. But these, I mean, Hernandez is more of your typical lottery ticket. He's maybe a backup catcher, but he's he's 18, 19. He's way too far away from the big leagues to really start projecting that kind of thing. He's, He's more of that lottery ticket. But Vargas is getting some helium. He's interesting and he is just at 3.3 because he's so far away and didn't start with the big prospect pedigree but he's starting to get some helium i believe eric longenhagen of fangraphs even mentioned jose ramirez his name when when talking about vargas and certainly not to say that he's going to be jose ramirez that's <laughs> obviously insane mm-hmm. but just as like vargas has a very good hit tool a very good approach at the plate if he can develop some power and and maintain and improve upon his hit tool and his approach then we could really be talking about something here. And that's an interesting player if you're the Mets to be getting for a couple months of a rental reliever, especially one that's, you know, he's making a few million down the stretch and he hasn't been necessarily dominant. He's been pretty good and and maybe gotten a little bit lucky, but I think that's a really good pickup for the Mets. And, And whether he makes it to New York or flames out before then, or is traded before then, there's so many different outcomes when a guy's this young and this far away from the big leagues, but this is the type of trade that the smart teams make. And I think that's what Cohen Cohen is trying to emulate the Dodgers and rays of the world and start making these smart deals. And I think this is a good step for him. So I just saw
1: an interview with Kim Ming where she said, you know, it's definitely a seller's market. Um, she said, if I think if there's something that you see that you like, you have to step up, which is something I think we did. And she's referring to the Robertson trade there. So yeah, they had to give a little bit more to get, you know, uh, a guy who's very solid late-inning guy in Robertson. Now he's 38, but look, <laughs> you know, 38-year-olds, like in the off season that matters more. If he's going well in this season, like, okay, he can handle it probably, and he's got postseason experience. So, you know, we were probably, you know, a little bit low adapting to the of market, but we started at the top of the show. We're not going to go too far with that. Um, but, you know, all that said, they picked up his salary and gave up some interesting – pieces well one interesting piece at least in vargas so the mets obviously did very well they saved a few bucks and they got it you know again they're they're looking to beef up their farm so they're doing a great job on that
0: yeah absolutely um unrelated but some news dropping while we're recording today is that nathan Ivaldi is going on the 10 day or excuse me the 15 day injured list with Mm -hmm. a forearm strain yeah Uh, that makes uh the mm-hmm. Scherzer deal that much more important for the Rangers. And mm. there was a report yesterday that they were still looking at more starters as well as relievers. And that makes a lot more sense now, right? There um, you go. Because yeah. forearms are concerning. You have all these, a guy who's had Tommy John, I believe twice before. Yeah. Right. Um, So yeah, that's, and he's been their best pitcher, arguably one of the best pitchers in the league this season. And so that would be a very, if he's out for any substantial amount of time, that would be a very, big blow for them so yeah not surprising to see the aggressive move for scherzer or potential future moves
1: so just worst case scenario let's say evaldi's situation is bad and he doesn't come back so and he was your best pitcher um and you're looking to make a deep playoff run now typically when you do that you need like at least an ace and a solid number two they've got a lot of guys who are just sort of mid john gray Andrew haney dane dunning martin perez I mean, I don't know if any one of those guys is a true two, and even Max Scherzer is probably not an ace anymore. So it makes you wonder, okay, if they're looking for another starting pitcher, is it going to be just another sort of depth guy, or is it going to be an ace? And if it's an ace, there aren't any aces out there, unless you think Verlander's still an ace, and maybe he is. But are they going to go back to the well with the Mets for Verlander because he's maybe the only ace? If Stroman is off the market, he's not an ace either. He's like a two. So where are they going to get that? So I guess they're counting on Max Scherzer to be an ace now. And maybe they just get what they get if they're looking for another starter.
0: I don't know. I think they have enough dart throws in that rotation of guys Mm -hmm. who, you know, you're not going to call them an ace, but have performed at a high level, right? Where Martin Perez was excellent last year, and he hasn't been that this year. And I, I don't think we expected him to be that this year. But he's at least a dart throw there. Andrew Haney has shown flashes, at least. John Gray has has been pretty solid as well I think I might underrate John Gray a little bit he's he's a pretty good pitcher again not an ace or anything but he's he's a dart throw of having those solid couple months and being a guy you trust to lead the rotation and then of course Scherzer is like highest upside and probably highest likelihood of that group of actually being that ace and I, I think I could see us getting some some either comments or con- frustrated Rangers fans that we are talking so low of Dane Dunning um I don't think what he's doing is quite sustainable i don't think the low, incredibly low strikeout rate supports the 320 ERA. i don't think that's that's quite who he is i think he's gonna be more of a back-end guy uh, which is which is solid and something that this rotation needs is a back-end guy who can go out and throw 160 innings every year um but i think that's what you're looking at with dunning uh, he's he's certainly not the answer there to that ace question that yeah, and
1: I just noticed something else that um, the Giants put Anthony DiSquifani on the I.L. So now you think, oh, they were OK with pitching, but maybe they are going to jump in the market for a pitcher. Who knows? It's I don't know, all these pitching injuries are everywhere.
0: I do really think and this is a bit of an aside, but I was watching the A's game yesterday, which I, I don't do as frequently as I used to. But they're playing in Colorado and they're scoring runs and it's kind of fun to watch. Um so I was watching that yesterday and Paul Blackburn looked pretty good. And I could see the A's being kind of silly about this like they have in the past and hanging on to guys when they really shouldn't because there's no there's no reason to keep anybody any veterans on that A's team right now except for like maybe Ramon Loriano, if you're like really interested in in trying to build his ba- value back up since it would be selling so low on him. But I think they should trade Blackburn and I think another team you know, could, could extract a little value there. Again, he's, he's not a guy I'm talking about in this ace conversation by any means. He's a lot closer to the Dane Dunning side of the conversation than the actual ace side. But talking about other teams that just need those innings filled, need a mid-rotation guy, I think he's a good candidate there that doesn't get talked about as much. And it's just a question of whether the A's are going to pull a Rockies and hang on to Blackburn and Seth Brown and some of these other pieces that could have a little bit of trade value or if they're going to pull the trigger.
1: I mean, yeah, <laughs> he's he's controllable, but he's out of options. So those two kind of cancel each other out. Because if he goes south, as he was once DFA'd, mind you, he had some really lean years there in the middle. Um, you know, so that's why he's not like you know, top of mind for people, and he's, you know, it's a soft tosser, and ten teams tend to look at guys who can throw a little bit harder, as we saw with Syndergaard. Once he lost his velocity, no one wanted him. So, but his numbers are okay, right? Blackburn's okay, and he's, you know, you can kind of sort of get him as an innings eater, although he's had injury issues the past two seasons. So he's a weird mix <laughs> of, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, no. So he's mid, right? That's what I got
0: yeah yeah I think the market that we're looking at though it's going to be hard to do a ton better than that which is what you were kind of just pointing out that yeah especially if Stroman might and even Stroman who is like very clearly the best pitcher potentially available at this point I mean I guess I guess you could make arguments between him and Eduardo Rodriguez but they're kind of 1A 1B neither of them are aces either like being totally clear on that they're they're not guys that most teams would would prioritize is like yep he's our number one in october and we are totally content with that we couldn't do any better like that that's not who those guys are they're more in that two to three in a like solid contending rotation but just given how weak the market is right now and given the pitcher injuries across the league that's going to be the best that a lot of teams can do
1: yeah and you remember when sean mania was traded to the padres and he you know basically was the back end starter for them and they barely used him in the playoffs. Now the giants are using him as a reliever I kind of see Blackburn kind of trending that same way. Like he's just sort of the extra guy. He's not like a guy you're going to use as whatever your top three.
0: Right. And I think the A's argument of that, if they did want to keep him is just that they have so many young innings in that rotation and they could use a little stability and maybe that outweighs whatever they'd get in a trade. But I don't know if it's a seller's market, maybe you get more than you expect in a trade. And yeah. although they, they haven't had the best track record in, in recent no. deadlines <laughs> and off seasons in actually getting value for their guys. So I don't know, maybe it's all moot. Maybe they're going to trade yeah. for a bag of peanuts. <laughs> Beleaguered days fans expect
1: half value at every, in every trade now.
0: Uh, yeah, it's, it's rough, but that's, uh, that's an aside. Uh, we'll talk about them if they actually make any moves here. Um, let's, fly through these last two trades real quick. Um the Astros acquired Kendall Graveman, had him at -4.7 million. Uh comes from the White Sox in exchange for catcher Corey Lee at 1.6. This one just barely sneaks through major overpay. Um I think again this is one where I'm not you know, I look at Graveman, I look at how he's performed, I look at his contract. I don't see this as a miss by the model. I see it more as, yep, the Astros did overpay here, and I feel a little bit more confident doing that, saying that, because of Jim Crane's increased involvement with the team since this offseason, since James Click left, and... With that, you know, he made the overpay f- to keep Rafael Montero in-house and Kendall Graveman is a guy who's been in Astro before and they liked him. And I think Dusty Baker had some quote where he was like, I was I was really sad to see him go last time. I, I wish we'd kept him. And so this feels like a move that might be more based on some of those sentiments and some of yeah. those like, yep, proven ladening arm and, and caring less about like the actual what he's actually shown on the field and how he actually projects and how that compares to his salary. Mm-hmm. so i think i think personally i lean more on like yep the astros did overpay here and you you can say that that's fine they obviously didn't give up a ton here in terms of talent with lee's value being so low um it's just more so that they're taking on some money that we didn't expect them to need to you know they theoretically they could have gotten the white Sox to eat a little bit here um but yeah that, that's kind of my assessment on this one lee yeah. is a former top prospect who has since flamed out so it's it's he's got the name recognition and a lot of people were surprised on that side of it, but he's he's fallen very far from where he wants to Yeah, was. his
1: his hitting has been very, very below average. And so I think there was a moment there where they called him up, the Astros did, and they're like, Nah, <laughs> he's not the answer and he's been replaced on the depth chart. And if you wa it's another sort of reason to watch what front offices do not necessarily what they said but what they do he had his chances he got passed over and basically he was expendable and he went back to the miners and he did not hit the miners so clearly his stock dropped like double eightfold. fold so and then on the gravement thing um you know there are just some pictures that you know we we look at advanced statistics right and relievers are always a little tricky but um like his advanced statistics are not good his surface statistics are not that great either but you know they're but you know it looks like he's to whatever degree he's still effective it's a little bit of a smoke and mirrors act at this point um is what the what the on paper is what it's telling us um because he doesn't have great stuff he's always been kind of a control guy but not a high velocity guy so like it's really he's doing a very tricky dance there i mean but obviously the astros like something and maybe they know how to work with him um but he hasn't been really good. And the underlying metrics say, no, he's not good, Uh, but maybe the Astros like him. So that's all I got.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's also a decent bullpen there already. So it's not like they're, they're getting this guy and saying, yep, you have the ball in the ninth inning, but yeah, I, I figured they could do better and maybe they will make another addition. I think they also need a lefty reliever. And so we could see them uh, make another move there. Uh, Last deal. Uh, The Brewers picked up first baseman Carlos Santana, negative 1.2, from the Pirates in exchange for shortstop prospect Johnny Severino at 0.3. This is just the Brewers doing their usual shuffle of picking up the cheap bats to address whatever position has been below average for them. In this case, they've had the worst first base production in the league, and... Santana you know he's he's not an impact bat like he used to be but he's he's been a league average hitter he's been a very good defender so they expect him to help there and he's a rental good clubhouse guy has all that going for him so nothing earth-shattering here um I saw a lot of reports about Severino side of things that you know oh he's a guy they paid like I think it was 1.3 million for as international signing last year and they're trading him for a rental and and this is such a good get for the pirates but he doesn't really have much prospect hype um kind of one of those cases of you have the international bonus pool you got to spend it even if you're not necessarily in agreement with any of the the top top guys on the market and so you might as well spend it and kind of take that lottery ticket approach and get that guy and, and see if he can develop but he is really just pure lottery ticket at this point he's not he's not a substantial prospect or at least not viewed that way by most outlets.
1: Can I just say, what is up with this trend of, of Johnny spelled J H O N N Y. I don't get it. It's bugging me because my name is John (laughs) and I spell it the usual way. So what's why are they flip flopping the H there? That's all I got. (laughs) I don't
0: like it. (laughs) We actually, we have a typo in, in our tweet uh, about announcing the trade because a lot of the people breaking the trade also had it spelled wrong and I'd never heard of the guy before so I just put in okay Johnny that's how we spell Johnny I don't know baseball baseball is ripe with oddly spelled names it's it's a it's a great ground for it Um, let's move from there into uh, just quick touches on some of these rumors you know we're recording this Sunday, midday, it'll probably be uploaded by Sunday evening. You might be listening to it by Monday morning. Who knows? Something might have happened on these on these rumors between the time we're talking now and the time you're hearing about it. So I don't want to dwell on these too long. The biggest one is Justin Verlander. We've talked about him throughout this episode. Um, do you think do what where are you leaning i know like i said i know we've talked about it on and off but where are you leaning on this one there's not a whole lot of candidates that are a super clean fit for him and we talked about all the complications with the salary so i'll just ask you for a quick yes or no and, and elaborate as much as you want um do you think he gets moved by the deadline i'm slightly leaning yes because you sort of made a good point about the dodgers
1: because from my head for some reason i was thinking astros and I was thinking, well, if you use the tr- the Scherzer trade as a template, the Astros don't really have the same sort of farm to kind of do that, but the Dodgers do, <clears throat> and the Dodgers have the salary um, yeah, headroom. So yeah, I can kind of squint and see the Dodgers, even though they just picked up Lynn. Um, I do think they're serious players, and I do think that you know because of the market being so starved with any sort of sense of quality that. Um, You know, there will be enough calls about Verlander that somebody like the Dodgers will pony up. Um, So I'm 60-40 on the S, basically, even despite all the complications with the contract.
0: Other point on the Dodgers is they pursued him in the offseason. I think they were the runners up there. So they clearly had some buy-in just this this past winter. So, yeah, I think they're the main team to watch there for sure. Um, Let's move next to the Cardinals. Uh, We've talked about them a lot. Uh, not going to get too in depth on anything here but there is a report that John Mazeliak came out and said that they are not trading Nolan Arnato. he said that pretty firmly there's been rumors back and forth and oh they're talking about him with the Dodgers and all these names are coming out and it's like is there actually is there something here um and we actually just as a, as a quick side note um caught a mistracking with his salary uh on the back end and so his his value was recently negative, but once we made a correction for his salary, which I, I guess we don't need to get too deep into if they're not trading him, um, but we made a correction to account for the money coming from the Rockies as well as some deferrals, and he's actually in the positive value now, so that's that's worth noting. But
1: Yeah, I geeked out on that, and I put an article yeah. <laughs> on it. If you really want to geek out, there it is.
0: <laughs> yes, that'll be in the show notes, um, but seems like they're not trading him. Probably makes the most sense. I think that was kind of what we settled on last time. It's kinda of weird to me that he got all this traction as a trade candidate, but we didn't really hear anything about Goldschmidt. I think, if anything, that supports the idea that they weren't really looking to trade Arenado, because you figure if you're trading Arenado, why would you keep Goldschmidt, right? He's kind of on the same timeline. He's he's actually older and closer to free agency, but like if you're if you're trading Arenado, you're shuffling pieces around and like taking some value away from the 2024 team to try and push it toward the 2025 and beyond teams and Goldschmidt doesn't fit that timeline. So maybe the fact that we didn't hear about Goldschmidt should have been a tell to us that there wasn't too much seriously being considered here on the Cardinals side.
1: Well, so two points here. One, I don't think they're going to do a full rebuild like there is not a it's not a break it down fire sale kind of situation. I think they're just going to trade the tradables, the ex- expiring contracts for the most part and or anybody in a logjam. And and go for it again next year because that's kind of their M.O., right? So if they're going for it again next year, then they're keeping their stars. So it kind of makes sense to me. Um, so you're still starting to hear rumors like, oh, well, Alec Burleson's getting some interest. It's probably because they're shopping him because he's one of these guys caught in the log jam. He's not a good defender. He's kind of a first base type that they're sort of playing in the corner outfield sometimes. He's not having a great year, so I'm not sure what you know what the interest level is other than he's cheap. By you know, by our model, so he's one of these expendable guys in the logjam. I think they are shopping Carlson, and I don't think they're getting all that much interest from him. So they do have to kind of fix that logjam. So in addition to the obvious rentals on the pitching side, I think one of those guys in that logjam will be moved. Um, so and you know, Tyler O'Neill's been off and on injured, and so I think people are wary about that. Um, one of the things that that I think is a factor with St. Louis is Jordan Walker their top prospects slash now rookie because he's he's basically blocked he started off as a third baseman in the minors and so he's blocked by arenado at third right so now he's contributing to this outfield logjam they want to play him for his bat but he's a bad outfielder so i don't so he's kind of like where do you put him so is he really a dh but he's a rookie you don't want to make a a rookie a dh and then that's why burleson is causing this domino effect right and so um you know i think he's kind of the key to understanding that whole logjam puzzle is where do you where do you play jordan walker and if you pick a spot for him then it, it creates a domino effect okay then that guy's expendable and that's where i think that's why you're
0: starting to see Burleson in the rumor mill right right all good points um just want to like super rapid fire these cuz i know we're up on time here uh we mentioned earlier cubs took cody Bellinger off the market do you have anything else to add on that any other thoughts um I think
1: that means Stroman's off the market too. I would imagine. Mm
0: -hmm. I guess the one difference between the two is that Bellinger can be given the qualifying offer this upcoming off season. And so if he continues to perform at this level, they offer him the qualifying offer and he goes somewhere else, they'll at least get draft pick compensation. But since Stroman has already had the QO, he can't be given it again. And so maybe that, that, extra factor is enough for them to, you know, try and thread the needle, trade one guy, but keep the other. But I think yeah. generally I do agree with you that they're probably hanging on to Strowman too. Yeah. And we
1: have Strowman's surplus value at like in the fours right now. A lot of people think that's too low. It's because of the buyout for 2024. But, um, but if you think about that, if we're right that his surplus value is in the fours, that's pretty close to what you would get in a draft pick. So I guess they sort of figure why not and just keep and go for it and then still get a draft pick at the end of the day.
0: Well, they wouldn't for Strowman, though, correct? Because he's already been QO'd, so they can't do right, it again. Right, exactly.
1: Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: Um, all right, so that's that. Uh, the Padres, there's no real news here. It's more so that they're just still on the bubble, and they're the last big team that really seems to have not picked a direction yet, and they have some big names. Um, I guess I'll just ask you now, What do you which, which way do you think they go? And if the answer is selling, how far do you think they sell?
1: You want me to read AJ Preller's mind? Are you nuts?
0: Yeah, we're, we're historically fantastic about that, <laughs> yeah, right? We're right. always right in lockstep with Preller.
1: Oh my God. Um, yeah, I have no idea. I mean, if you look at the actual evidence though, one of the things that, that keeps jumping out at me is their run differential is really good. Like they should be, they should have a winning record. They should be closer than than to the wildcard than what they actually are. I got to think that that, that is giving them a, a buoying their confidence a little bit. Um, But that's offset by the fact that, hey, we could get, you know, given it's a seller's market, put Snell and Hater on the market, we get, you know, premium prices for those guys. Even though, according to our model, there's not that much surplus value, but yes, you can amp it up a little bit for the seller's market. But even so, you know, it's not going to be like a franchise turnaround kind of a return, which makes me wonder, like, maybe... They're more likely to just stand pat. But if they're standing pat, that means they're not really picking a direction. So I don't think Preller's the type of guy that's sort of waffling in the middle. I got a hunch he's going to declare themselves buyers and go for it. They do need, like, another bat in that eighth spot. has been terrible for them all year. Um, And I think they do need another reliever because outside of hater, it's been kind of spotty. So I kind of lean that way for them.
0: Yeah. And you figure they can do both of those things pretty cheap. So they're not mortgaging the future for right. a season that might be lost. Right. Um, and they're and
1: their, in and their owner spends. So, right. you know, they can always replace snow in the off season. So I think that's probably the more likely scenario.
0: Yeah, I think I agree, but I think they could also take it down to the wire and, and play it by ear. Um, Last team to talk about Mariners, there's a report that they could deal from the rotation and that they are open to offers on Paul Seawald. Uh, we've talked about them a lot. I think you specifically mentioned Seawald like a month ago as a potential Yay, trade Seewald. candidate for them. Yeah. Um, it seems like they're, they're even further out of the race than some of these other teams that we've talked about and, and mm-hmm. probably more in the seller discussion, but just don't want to entirely give up, it sounds like. And it sounds like they're just making these they're, they're trying to make decisions mostly with 2024 in mind, but also giving themselves that outside shot at 2023. I think they, there was a quote from the poto today that he's not sure if, uh if Teoscar Hernandez will be on the team on Wednesday or if he'll be traded. Um, I'll take that as a yes. Exactly. He will be traded. <laughs> yeah. Cause he, he can't answer that question. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's either no, or it's maybe, and that maybe actually means yes. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, Anyway, so it seems like they have potential to do some interesting things between Seawald and, as you mentioned, as we've talked about actually on a lot of pre- previous episodes, the rotation they can deal from, whether they should or shouldn't, whether that's it's more likely a guy like Miller or Wu, lower-end guy, and much less likely a guy like Logan Gilbert or George Kirby because of how they've just become fantastic. But those are the two guys. If If there's another team that's just willing to just throw all their chips in and get that ace, like we've been talking about and, and a controllable one to boot. Those are the two guys you're looking at.
1: Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, Gilbert and Kirby, Kirby even more so than Gilbert, I think is the higher, higher valued one in our model. Uh, but Gilbert alone would take a haul, a uh, really good pitcher with years of cheap control. I mean, that's going to take a haul. Um, so I know that there's been some dabbling in there, some rumors in there. So that would be kind of a shocker to me if we saw that on Monday or Tuesday. Um, but I wouldn't put it past them because I think Depoto realizes it's not their year. So, yeah, trade DeHausker, probably trade Seawald. It was a year of control left, but still, they've been known to you know recycle relievers. Uh, but the bigger question is, will they trade one of those big stalwart rotation guys? And that can really affect the market. So watching that closely.
0: Yeah, I think the difference there is that they realize it's not their year, and it's not quite the situation of the Cardinals or... The Padres, were both of those teams, like, they primarily, well, the Padres have all the money in the world and can do whatever they want this offseason to kind of get back where they should be, right? And same with the Mets. The Cardinals, they need some pitching, but they have so many young position players that they can sort something out. They can make something work there. They shuffle guys around and and make a few smart signings and trades, and, and they can build something up there. The Mariners have... I think they have like kind of artificial financial limitations. Their owner just doesn't spend as much as, as he probably could. And they need offense in a bad way. And there really isn't any hitting the free agent market this off season. So I think DePoto realizes that not only is he not in it right now, but as of right now, he's not really in it for 2024 either, despite the rotation and all the other talent on the field there, they're, they're missing significant pieces. And they're not going to be able to wait around until the off season and just sign a couple guys and fill those holes. Like might need to be a little bit proactive here and add some controllable bats to, to fill some of those gaps.
1: Yeah. It'll be a very interesting play and trader. Jerry always has things up his sleeve. So I'm going to, yeah, he's in a sneaky way. He could be the one to watch this, this week.
0: I agree. All right. I think we're good here. Uh, do you have any, any last notes, any last predictions between now and, and Tuesday's deadline?
1: Um, no, um, I do think we're going to see some more overpays. Um, I am, believe we're going to do one more run of an update of the numbers on our site um, tonight or tomorrow. So um, you might see things change again. That's about it.
0: And that'll just be a very minor change yeah. just just passage a of days. time for the most part. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, great. I am looking forward to these next fun couple of days and seeing how crazy things get. And uh, we'll have you covered every step of the way, so keep an eye on us on the website formerly known as Twitter. Uh, I realized today that the link is like you still type in twitter.com to get there. So oh, just yeah. a very, very silly all around. <laughs> um, Anyway, <laughs> that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at com or find us on Twitter at Baseball Values. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back next week to break down more of these trades and recap the full trade deadline. And we'll be with you every step of the day over on Twitter, on our socials. And make sure you're tuned in. You don't want to miss any of this. So stay safe. Enjoy the rest of trade season. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.